This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.20 a.m. on the 15th of June, 2020. This is episode 251. Of Bitcoin and I pissed a shit ton of people off over the weekend. Yes, I did. Uh, seems that that my little video clip of Charles Hoskinson, Ethereum co-founder, uh, yeah, got got it, got some some serious traction, and I've been <clears throat> called everything from a journalist to a shitty journalist. I'm not a journalist, so I can't be a shitty journalist nor nor a journalist. Um, it, I I I was accused of making a deep fake, dude. I don't have the equipment <laughs> to make a deep fake. Uh, the reason that it was called called a deep fake, I think, was because Periscope uh, has this really bad habit of not aligning or has the ability not the the inability to always perfectly align video to audio. You know why? Because that shit's hard. And it's really hard to do it on the fly inside of an app on your phone. Anyway, the, the whole thing was is that Charles Hoskinson made this Periscope video. And I, he released it like, I don't know, I think it was Saturday morning or something like that. And he was essentially bitching and moaning and crying about the fact that people kept referring to him as an Ethereum co-founder and not the creator of uh, one of the worst shit coins on planet, ADA, or also known as Cardano, or Cardigan, or whatever you call this this thing. And he was very upset. Oh, he was so upset that at the very end of the video, he says, uh, "If you ever want me to get, if you ever want to get an interview with me or anybody who works for me." then you're going to have to start referring to me as uh, CEO of my very important company, whatever the hell his company is, is named. Because reasons, I, I, I don't know. But what kind of, you know, got to me about that was the fact that, so if I work for Charles, I'm not allowed to give an interview without his permission. How very voluntarist of you there, Charles. No, I'm not going to play the clip because the thing was passed around the world like twice since I released it. It has finally died down. It finally burned itself out after, God, uh, 628 likes, 184 replies, and 62 retweets, which is probably going to go down in history or like in, in the very near history, the tweet that got <laughs> the most the most engagements of my entire Twitter uh, existence, which is sad because it's, you know, uh, I would have rather had a couple, there's a lot of other stuff that I would have rather had got traction, but this one apparently is the one that got traction. So I just thought I'd, I'd say something about it. Um, yeah. So Charles is, yeah, he's not having a good day. He apparently very much appreciates his positioning as CEO of some very important and very relevant company. I, I, I don't get it, but uh, to, to each his own. Uh, let's, uh, with that aside, let's start off here with the May Dev blog of Light Night Games. And I just want to uh, go through this because there's some pretty cool stuff in here. Uh, Light Night Game, <clears throat> if you are not... Uh, following this is by satoshi's game <clears throat> games and uh we have quite a bit of updates here uh the store has been getting a lot of love recently we upgraded the entire logic system from play.lightnight.io to improve performance and make the system more robust additionally we slightly changed the style of the storefront home screen to reduce the amount of items listed 
The amount of items was reduced from seven to four. Originally, it was set to 13. Currently, every time the user reloads the site, a new item is displayed on the store. Next month, we plan to release a static section of the storefront where the same items are listed for a period of time during an event. Thank God, I hate that change stuff. Uh, one of the things that we want to prove is consistency. We put some effort into coming up with the guidelines for the graphics, whether it is for 3D models in the web viewer or the posters that show up in the browsing store. The changes mainly focus on how the assets are displayed. From now on, you will find the store entries getting a little more consistent and getting a professional touch. Okay, this one, I like this one. Now you can finally deposit your skin from your liquid wallet to the game. From the settings button, deposit or click on deposit skin, then a liquid address is generated. Make sure to correctly copy the desired address to send the liquid asset. Uh, in addition to skin deposit, we added skin withdraw, which allows you to export your skin from the game to your liquid water or gift it to a friend. From your library, click on the settings button, blah, 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 blah. Uh, some improvements have also been taken in our uh, game assets explorer. When searching for an asset, you can now query by ticker or user ID, as well as previous attributes, name, UTXO, liquid ID, and skin ID. Uh, we have been working on the character customization screen. The prototype concept is shown below. As you can see, what the, what the prototype is missing is the user interface. The first UI mockup was based on a previous concepts, which were curvy and cartoony. However, since our current menus have an angular sharp design, we decided to go with something that has the same visuals for now. This angular design was revised a few times and the final version was integrated into the game. As you, currently, as you already know, the next big milestone for us is to enable players to use the skins they have obtained in the game. We decided to do this incrementally due to the vast number of assets we currently offer in the store. The first step is a small pilot test while the second step is a continuous fan-driven process. Uh, let's see, what else is, have they talked about? Yeah. Oh, collaborations. If you have been following us on social media, you must have obtained a skin or two by attending the giveaway host, hosted by the lizard people over there at Blockstream. The event featured a few skins and assets which we prepared graphics for, and then there's some setting dialogue stuff. Uh, let's, go, let's, let's read the closing remards. That's actually how they've spelled it. Guys, over there at Light Night, you need an editor, bro. <laughs> remards, M-R-E-M-A-R-D-S. -R -R no, it's remarks. Closing remarks. We are planning to release the COVID-19 minigame during May, but we shifted things slightly to give ourselves more time to refine the gameplay logic and visuals. We are extremely sorry for the delays, but we believe that you will love the revisions we made. We are itching to share updates, but we will wait for the right moment. So, Light Night game from Satoshi Games is just rolling right out. And some of the newer gameplay that I've seen from this thing, it looks really good. I mean, it, it, I, I was, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, I mean, low poly. You know, I thought we had gotten out of that. But there's something to be said for really good game artists, especially those game artists that keep in mind what's gone on in video games in the past. <clears throat> and that's what's going on here. They have been able to make blocky things look good. And that is such a huge boon to gameplay because as long as your graphics card or processor or whatever is not having to draw polygons out the ass, then you can concentrate on slick movement, uh, user interface stuff, uh, you know, be better visual effects it, because there's so much goes into drawing all the polygons. Although some of the new stuff I've seen out of NVIDIA may make all that bullshit just not even matter anymore. I'm not getting into that. You want to look at it just to, I don't know, Google new technology and NVIDIA and you will probably find that which will blow your mind if you do not DM me and I will give you a link to what it is that I'm talking about there. So what's up next? Okay. Okay. Let's do this. Uh, on Friday, on episode 250, the very last part of the Daily Train Wrecked was an accidental Daily Train Wrecked featuring none other than Craig Wright. Um, 
And I read this letter from his lawyers, SCA Antia, that was putting Blockstream and some other people on notice about a couple of particular addresses that had a shit ton of Bitcoin in them. Turns out one of the addresses, the one FEX address, which would be one F-E-E-X address, that's why I'm calling it the one FEX, <clears throat> is the uh, one of the wallets that the Mt. Gox coins went to during during and directly after the hack. Uh, okay, so that puts <clears throat> that throws a huge wrench into everything. Now let's. I'm just going to start with uh, Ricardo Spagni or at Fluffy Pony. Uh, he had he was one of the first people to bring it to light that the one f the that the uh, FEX or the one FEX address was the Mount Gox address in a tweet on when was this thing? June the 12th at 10:56 a.m. He says, just so we're clear, Craig Wright has just openly admitted via his lawyers to be the guy that stole 80,000 Bitcoin from Mount Gox. The screenshots below show the court documents indicating the one FEX address is where the stolen Mount Gox funds were sent. What do you have to say? Calvin Air. Okay, let's expand on this with a decrypt.co article written by Liam Frost on June the 12th. Did the Mt. Gox Bitcoin hacker finally reveal himself? Not many people would admit to having orchestrated one of Bitcoin's biggest ever exchange hacks, but it appears one has. Self-proclaimed Bitcoin inventor Craig Wright has appeared to claim that he was the hacker of Bitcoin exchange Mt. Gox in 2011, when 79,956 Bitcoin worth $751 million today was stolen in a letter sent to Bitcoin service provider Blockstream, writes law firm SCA ONTA, I guess that's how it's pronounced, O-N-T-I-E-R, ONTIER? Maybe it's ONTIER, I don't know. Alleges that he has control over two Bitcoin addresses. One of the addresses specified is the same address that received the Bitcoin stolen from Mt. Gox, according to the then Mt. Gox CEO, Mark Carpellis, quote, and this is basically Mark Carpellis's tweet, which was tweeted out June the 12th at 11.03 a.m. He says the one FEX address contains 80,000 BTC stolen from Mt. Gox on March 2011. Craig Wright is claiming to have been in control of this address until recently, admitting legal liability for damages and interests, question mark says Carpellis on Twitter, Decrypt has seen the letter and received confirmation that it is real. Bitcoin Block Explorers confirm that the address currently contains 79,956 Bitcoin, which is unspent. Quote, <clears throat> quote uh, oh, that's, I'm sorry, they, they reiterated uh, Fluffy Pony's quote, just so we're clear, he just openly admitted that he's stolen the guy. He's the guy that stole from Mt. Gox. Okay. In the letter, Wright's lawyers claim that access to this account was stolen from him on February the 5th, 2020. And yet, bizarrely, they want Blockstream to, quote, do something about it. <laughs> End quote. Uh, more quote. Tulip and Dr. Wright believe that as those responsible for the Bitcoin core blockchain, you have duties in relation to transactions on that blockchain in circumstances where you have notice of the interest involved, including in particular avoiding illegitimate transactions being entered on the blockchain where you have notice of the same, in quote, the letter states. The letter states it wants to put Blockstream on notice that the funds still belong to Wright and that the company should not attempt to move them or allow them to move. It seems to assert that Blockstream runs the Bitcoin network and is responsible for transactions that moves across it even though this is not true, Bitcoin is run by a decentralized community of 10,500 nodes around the world. And then they give a copy of the uh, SCA Ontier or Ontier letter. Uh, a, a little note about the community of 10,500 nodes. Those are publicly uh, visible nodes. We have no idea how many Tor nodes there are because we can't see them. So there may be hundreds of thousands of nodes. There may be 10,501 nodes. <clears throat> Anything over 10,500 nodes, we don't know about. Okay, so keep that in mind when somebody says, well, only 10,500 bullshit. There's a lot more nodes than that. We just don't know how many there are, where they are, who's running them. And that's a good thing. Hell, man, a feature, not a bug. 
Okay, so in, in more chicanery. YouTube bans Bitcoin.com's account for basically no reason, Roger Ver says. Now, this was written two hours ago by Stephen O'Neill over at uh, Cointelegraph. However, keep the following in mind as I read this. It appears that the YouTube channel has been re- reinstated, but let's, let's find out what happened here. Uh, the YouTube channel seems to continue its shadow crack or the YouTube YouTube seems to continue its shadow crackdown on cryptocurrency coverage as it shuts down the official channel of Roger Ver's Bitcoin.com. Uh, according to a statement, Bitcoin.com chairman Roger Ver, exe- I'm sorry, executive chairman Roger Ver uploaded to Reddit earlier today. The account was terminated for basically no reason. He went on to suggest that it could have been reported by BTC Maximalist, Ver, with two, spelled with two R's, has been a vocal proponent of Bitcoin Cash, criticizing Bitcoin for becoming a store of value. Quote, I suspect probably a bunch of these Bitcoin core anti-competition maximalists falsely reported the video saying it's a Bitcoin Cash scam or some nonsense like that, end quote. No, it's a scam. I mean... I didn't report it as such, but it's definitely a scam. Ver added that regardless of whether the YouTube account will be reinstated, it seems like the right time to start exploring other options, namely uh, library.tv, DTube, and BitChute. He noted that he still needs to learn more about them, asking the audience to weigh in and suggest viable alternatives. The Bitcoin.com founder also stressed that there are tons of giveaway scams on YouTube featuring fake celebrity endorsements from Elon Musk's and others, suggesting that the platform has been inefficient in tackling fraud. It is currently unclear how many subscribers Bitcoin.com's YouTube account had at the time it was suspended. According to a cash version of the channel from May, it boasted over 25,000 subscribers. So, okay. So he got his shit taken down. Uh, last I checked, which was about 15, 20 minutes ago, um, before I started the show, uh, it is back up. So, yeah. So who knows what happened? I honestly, I don't think they got, I don't think they got brigaded because if brigading was going to happen, that shit would have happened a long, long freaking time ago. Uh, I really honestly think it's the whole YouTube algorithm stuff, but whatever they should have just knocked it down completely because Bcash is a scam. <clears throat> JP Morgan completes surprise Bitcoin flip and calls a price floor. Oh, this is a little bit different one. Now, this was written on a June the 13th. Uh, this is Billy Bambro. He's writing for Forbes. JP Morgan, one of Wall Street's biggest banks, and up until recently, an outspoken Bitcoin critic has changed its tune. On the world's number one cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin price now hovering just under $10,000 per Bitcoin has added around 30% since the beginning of the year, despite the coronavirus crash and Bitcoin's closely watched third supply squeeze. Now, JP Morgan, whose chief executive once branded Bitcoin a fraud, has said Bitcoin is looking mostly positive uh, and cryptocurrencies more broadly have longevity as an asset class. Now, okay, I told you about that on Friday, but let's see what their floor is. Though the Bitcoin bubble collapsed, As dramatically as it inflated, Bitcoin has rarely traded below the cost of production, very important, including the very disorderly conditions that prevailed in March, J.P. Morgan analyst said in a report led by head of U.S. interest rate derivative strategist Joshua Younger and cross-asset research analyst Nikolos Paralelogna, I can't pronounce that name. Bitcoin briefly crashed to under $4,000 per Bitcoin in March, losing over half of its value in under a month as the spreading coronavirus pandemic sent panic through global markets. Bitcoin bounced back quicker than most other assets, however, recovering almost all of its corona crash losses by the end of April. Equity markets have now almost entirely returned to pre-coronavirus highs, which is idiotic. Boosted by unprecedented central bank stimulus led by multi-trillion dollar measures from the United States Federal Reserve. While JP Morgan found the Bitcoin price has recently begun to trade in line with riskier assets like equities, Bitcoin has consistently maintained a price above its production costs. Others have previously named the cost of creating new Bitcoin, a process known as mining, as the potential floor for the Bitcoin price. However, the net cost of Bitcoin mining has changed recently with the number of Bitcoin rewarded to those that maintain the Bitcoin network cut in half in May, uh, dropping from 12.5 Bitcoin to 6.25 ahead of the May having The cost of mining one Bitcoin was put around $7,000 by crypto-focused research firm TradeBlock. The Bitcoin price has climbed 
Since its third halving, though, it failed to hold on to gains above 10,000 despite recently moving above the psychological line. Elsewhere, the report found that there's little evidence of run dynamics or even material quality tiering among cryptocurrencies, even during the throes of the crisis in March, suggesting Bitcoin weathered its first stress test very well. JP Morgan also said it expects Bitcoin to remain mostly a speculative asset. So, you know, it goes on just a little bit further. But the, co- you know, the cost of production being the, the price floor, honestly, I think that 7000 is a little high. There are, I, I guarantee you there are some people that are getting Bitcoin way cheaper than that. And that would be the likes of people who are able to harvest waste energy on like uh, mining rigs that cost next to nothing to run. Well, because they don't have to pay for the energy like uh, captured natural gas out there in West Texas where I grew up. Um, I mean, at that, at that point, you're getting paid for flare mitigation services to go the hell out there and gather the gas, run these rigs so you get paid twice, right? They give you the gas for flare mitigation and money to do it, and then you get money on the other side. That's one of the things that I love about win, 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 win situations, man. It's like if you, if you, if you set your, if you align your incentives correctly, holy shit, man, you knock down a lot of dominoes all at once. Ether mining pool decides to pocket one of those $2.6 million fee transactions. Cointelegraph's Andrea Shevchenko is writing this one uh, sometime this morning. Uh, Ether Mining Pool Ether Chain decided to distribute the $2.6 million in fees it received as part of the abnormal string of transactions seen last week. According to a tweet published on June the 15th, the pool will distribute the windfall to all miners who participated in that block, according to a snapshot taken at the time of the transaction. Justifying the decision, the company said that given the amount involved, we believe four days is sufficient time for the sender to get in touch with us. The company further revealed that several actors got in touch claiming to be the owners of the account, though they were not able to provide a valid signature that would conclusively prove that they were the original owners. Core Ethereum developers Vlad Zamfir and Peter criticized the decision, with Zamfir being particularly befuddled. Said that, quote, I'd honestly wait a month or two if you're serious about giving it back. Uh Uh-huh. Eh, eh. God, pussies. Core theory, or, uh, Ether chain noted that it will automatically distribute funds to miners if any such occurrence were to happen again, which may suggest that the pool was not enthusiastic about returning the money in the first place. The $2.6 million fee is approximately one day's worth of block rewards on Ethereum, calculated with an ETH price as of press time of $223. However, that fee is not spread evenly on the entire network as Ether chain's Ethermine pool controls only 21% of the hash rate according to EtherScan. Thus, Miners on that pool can expect to receive the equivalent of about five days of normal mining. As Cointelegraph previously reported, Chinese analyst firm PeckShield theorized that hackers gain complete access to an exchange but are unable to withdraw its funds because private keys are compartmentalized. Thus, they can only send money to whitelisted addresses, but by setting such enormous fees, they are effectively wasting the money. This could be part of a ransom strategy where the hackers are requesting to be paid off to stop these transactions. Yeah, okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, But just to reiterate, that honestly, that sounds like a pretty good theory. Um, It it, it sounds like a good theory insofar that that's the way the the, uh, game theory mechanics would have to work um, for you to be able to get, you know, to to make a, a, a ransom situation work. And here's where I come back to the absolute bonkers uh, complexity that Ethereum is. It is a giant Rube Goldberg machine. And the more pipes you put in the system, the easier it is to stop up the drain. I said that on Friday. And this is exactly what's happening. They're stopping up one drain somewhere to get overflow in another one. So by burning the money of the exchange, even though they can't access the exchange's holdings they can jack with the amount of money i mean they're just causing leakage to occur on their fundage and the the reason that they're able to do that is that complex systems hence a shit ton of pipes 
allow a lot of places to stop up the drain. The simpler a system is, the easier it is to secure. This is why I Bitcoin. Bitcoin Rewards Program targets everyday shoppers, big brands, and Satoshis. Daily Hodl staff writing this one sometime yesterday for the Daily Hodl. Bitcoin-friendly gift card vendor BitRefill is launching a BTC back program that allows users to earn Satoshis as they make purchases on the platform. BitRefill Rewards offers, uh, or sorry, BitRefill Rewards offers users the option to receive a minimum of 1% back for every purchase in Bitcoin and and a maximum of 6% on 217 products in the U.S. and the U.K. across multiple categories, including retail, home, e-commerce, restaurants, and health and beauty. The rewards will be accumulated in the form of Satoshis. Bitcoin's smallest unit of measurements were one Satoshi equals 0.0000001. Since Bitcoin supply is fixed at 21 million, there are currently fewer than 2.1 trillion Satoshis available. The company decided to denominate the rewards in Satoshis instead of fiat currencies like the US dollar or the euro so users can stack sats and potentially avoid the loss of purchasing power due to incoming inflation and traditional currencies. Bye, bye, bye! Mm -hmm. BitRefill's platform allows users to purchase gift cards or mobile refills from more than 1,650 businesses in 170 countries using crypto and fiat currencies. The company's partners include Airbnb, AMC, Audible, Hulu, Stream, GameStop, Carnival, and Princess Cruises. Although I'm pretty sure that Carnival and Princess Cruises is probably going to go bye-bye. Uh, they're in deep shit because of this whole corona thing. In June of ni- or 2019, BitRefill raised $2.1 million in an investment round that saw the participation of Litecoin creator Charlie Lee. Don't. Don't hate me because I said his name. Okay. Uh, oh, wait. I already did that one. Do, do, do. Oh, Mr. Jamie's car crash ends with a Bitcoin transaction. Daily Hodl staff writing it for dailyhodl.com on June the 14th. A Bitcoin maximalist, a dirty maximalist, an entrepreneur has shared a few details about his recent car accident. According to Twitter user Mr. Jamie, it could also be pronounced Mr. Jaime. He ended up with an additional Bitcoin in his crypto wallet after he got rear-ended. In a series of tweets posted on Saturday, he explains that the guy who crashed into his vehicle did not want to call the police. The problem, according to Jamie, was that the other driver didn't have enough cash on hand to pay for the damage. Jamie needed a secure way to receive compensation on the spot with a stranger without the risk of transaction being reversed at a later date. Jamie wrote, quote, got rear-ended. Guy really, really didn't want the police involved. Who would? paying later really wasn't an option. Didn't trust him. Bank transfers take days. He didn't have enough cash. Turns out he had Bitcoin. 30 minutes later, he's on a tow truck and I'm on my way home, end quote. Responding to the story, crypto enthusiasts and Bitcoin skeptics on Twitter chimed in with proponents pointing out that Bitcoin eliminates middlemen in the real world as naysayers claim that the story was a creative advertisement to pump Bitcoin. Pumping the corn. Misc.memphian added, quote, Bitcoin prevented the police from getting involved because Bitcoin allowed two peers to conduct their own business without any central authority, the banks, or the police, end quote. Alex Allegro agreed that Bitcoin offered an elegant solution to the situation. Quote, guys, The point here is to use BTC as a problem solver in certain situations. They didn't want government involved, but they didn't trust each other. Pay with Bitcoin. Done. End quote. According to Twitter user Claudiacio, or wait, Claudacio. Yeah, Claudacio. Quote, in a few years, he will bite his ass that he paid you in Bitcoin for this and regret not calling the police. Uh, Oh, cryptic T. Dot co suggested that middlemen may be involved in the long run. Quote, sir, you'll need to pay taxes on that. And Jamie says he waited for two blockchain confirmations before settling the Bitcoin transaction and leaving the scene. You can check out the full thread here. And clearly here is a link to that thread. And I'm not going to do that. So uh, how's he going to have to pay taxes on that? I mean, you can't prove that he has possession of it. I mean, if, if Mr. Mr. Jaime or Mr. Jamie or however you pronounce it, uh, if, you know, if he or, and, or she, I guess, uh, is smart about it. Uh, there's no way you can prove possession. 
And the only way that I have to pay taxes on anything is if I can, if you can, if you as the IRS or some other government entity can prove that I own it and that I am still in, not only own it, but in possession of it. I mean, I, I really hate to break it to all the, uh, the people out there, but you know, and especially considering that the IRS concluded a few years back that Bitcoin is a commodity. If somebody gives me a gold coin, I don't pay taxes on it until I convert it to fiat. Okay, now this is not any kind of advice, tax or otherwise. If you really got a, you know questions about it, consult a tax attorney or any, I don't know, somebody who knows shit about taxes. But honestly, man, in my opinion, good luck with that. Moving on. Uh, oh no, not moving on. We're moving to vitals. All right, what do we got? We got everything's down. Uh, S&P is down a point. NASDAQ is down uh, a third of a point. These are all percentage points, by the way. Uh, Dow Jones is down one and a quarter point. FTSE's down over half a point. Nikkei's down three, <clears throat> three and a half points. Hang Seng's down two and uh, 2.16 points. Shanghai's down a point. So it's kind of... Although the, the Dow Jones or the S&P has recovered off of its lows, its opening lows, uh, and so has, let's see what the Dow Jones, let's see if it's recovered off of its opening. Uh, come on, give me the day, dude. Yeah, it's recovered quite a bit off of its opening. So, you know, it's not as bad of a bloodbath as I guess everybody thought it was going to be. But be that as it may, let's get into, let's see what some of the other stuff is doing here. I got, I don't know, bonds are all down. Uh, the yields of the United States three-month bond has pushed up 0.007% to bring it in at a whopping 0.17% interest rate. Uh, futures mostly down. Oil is down a third of a percent. Um, its last was 3615 Gold is holding. Its last was 1,727. That's down half a percent. Uh, let's see. Yeah, let's talk about real money, though. Uh, Bitcoin at bitinfocharts.com says that the price is 9,247. Where's my high? Uh, my high is going to be over at BitAsset at 9,357. And my low is going to be... Ah, that is my low. Two thousand or nine thousand two hundred forty-seven bucks is my low. Three fifty-seven is my high. So we've got a hundred-dollar uh, trading range in there for arbitrage. Two hundred eighty thousand transactions were sent in the last twenty-four hours, giving us about twelve thousand transactions on average per hour. With only eight hundred nine thousand BTC being sent in that period, that gives us about thirty-three thousand seven hundred twenty-nine BTC being sent on average per hour. And about three BTC is the average transaction value, while the median transaction value is 0.024 BTC, about 219 bucks. Block times are still low at nine minutes and 10 seconds. 0.139 BTC are being taken in fees on a per block basis. 21 BTC have been taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. We've had an increase in hash rate of 2.3%, bringing us up to 101 exahashes per second. Last GitHub commit was sometime yesterday. Ethereum at 226, Bcash at 231, BSV at ooh, 173, Litecoin at 43, Ethereum Classic at 6.16, Dogecoin holding it at 0 0.0025. 50,500 transactions in the last 24 hours stomps the usual suspects. Ethereum Classic, it kills Litecoin and it absolutely destroys Bcash. Bcash is chilling at 15,900 transactions on at, well, somewhere around 15,000 transactions in a 24 hour period has become the norm for Bcash. Why? Because it's a shit coin. However, that doesn't explain BSV's 711,000 transactions in the same period. BSV is also a shit coin. And in my opinion is even worse than Bcash because an abomination born out of an abomination has got to be worse. It just it has to be. Ugh. 
Okay, so my note is telling me that the daily hash rate average is 102, quite a bit different than 111. There is, however, the weekly average of my, or my note is saying that the network is chilling out at 112 exahashes per second uh, for the week. We have 27,500 pending transactions in Mempool. And it does appear that all the blocks are full, or at least, well, not all, but the last 10 blocks that have been mined are, are full. Let's see what Clark Moody has to say. Clark Moody's mempool, or whatever mempool he's drawn from, says that there are 28,784 transactions representing 14.5 megabytes needing 15 blocks to clear. So we're, yeah, we're not that backed up in mempool, I suppose. We have 90 or 941.5 BTC as a total lightning network capacity. That gives us seven or $8.7 million in liquidity spread out across 7,230 nodes with 300, sorry, good Lord, 36,351 channels. Tor capacity has gone up yet once again. We have 426.5 BTC as the Tor capacity, and that pushes it up to what I think might be an all-time high of 45.3% of all lightning network is buried inside of tor nodes the number of tor nodes is two thousand one hundred and four dollars that's gonna do it for vitals Kraken explains impact if all 300 billion dollars in stimulus checks was invested into bitcoin Benjamin Pyrus, sorry, Benjamin Pyrus ushering in the morning roundup part two. He's writing this one for, who is it? Forbes. He's writing this one for Forbes on June the 13th, but nonetheless, as the United States economy gets back into motion after months of COVID-19 protection measures, many citizens have likely already received money from the government in the form of stimulus checks or deposits. Although many folks may have already spent their cash allotment from Uncle Sam, what would happen if everyone put their stimulus money toward Bitcoin? Quote, if every stimulus check was used to buy Bitcoin, we'd see Bitcoin's market cap exceed $2 trillion. Director of Business Development for Kraken Digital Asset Exchange, Dan Hill, told me via email correspondence on May the 12th. Editors note. Investing in cryptos is highly speculative and not that you know, it, this is the cover your ass statement. Okay. Just, you know, being, being kosher here. Leading to those calculations as of the time of comment, Held noted Bitcoin touted a market cap of $160 billion, while the total stimulus amount allocated for citizen, citizens totaled $300 billion. That means the total amount allocated for stimulus payments nearly doubles all the speculative money investments or invested in Bitcoin at the time of his comment. Bitcoin's current press time market cap sits just shy of $174 billion, according to coin market cap data. Investing is in a speculative and volatile asset such as Bitcoin, however, may not be people's first instinct. Given heightened unemployment numbers in recent months, people often flock to cash or other stable assets during uncertainty. Additionally, Experts said citizens may want to prioritize stimulus check spending on necessities as needed. COVID-19 prevention measures took flight in mid-March. Yeah, you know the rest of the story. So I I just want (laughs) that was just a nice little thing. A what if hopium scenario. Yeah, that was never going to happen. I mean, it's nice to speculate that way, but honestly, you got to be real about shit. That that was never, ever, ever going to happen. Uh, we be, and a lot of that has to do with the fact it's the same shit that we fight day in and day out with haters and people who think that we're lunatics is that even us lunatics that understand what's going on is still going to be really difficult to, to break our neurological training because we were all raised in a system of fiat cash and Kane or fiat money and Keynesian economics. I mean, when you are born into a system, that system, for lack of a better term, the way that the brain develops, and this is any neurology, by the way, it's going to develop along the lines of the system in which it's contained. If you were to take a baby 
and put it into a stark white room with at least one other person to hold it and, and make sure that it's loved and cared for and fed and clothed and, and changed. Cause without that, that baby dies. Okay. So that aside, no knowledge like grows up the entire life without any television, any radio, any kind of outside media is only, I don't know, told about the world by the, the caretaker and the caretaker somehow or another is able to contain his or her uh, own training to not say anything about the world. You know what would happen? That child would still probably grow up into an adult with some fucked up shit about how money works because the caretaker themselves is unable to break out as careful as the caretaker is to not say anything about how money works, what money is, what gold is, any of that. It's still there. It still impacts the neurology. It still impacts the way people think. And that's going to be injected into this poor child. So even though the child, essentially what I'm describing is you're going to permanently screw this kid up if you were to do something like this. I'm just saying as sort of like a mental experiment. And this goes in, this actually goes into um, something else. It's called the, well, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like four, you put four or five monkeys in a cage and there's a pole in the middle of the cage. And on the top of that pole, which is much higher than any of the monkeys are tall. Okay. So we're talking about a pole you got to climb, right? It's not like something you can reach to the top of with just by standing next to it. Right. So on top of this pole is a, a platform that's large enough to hold like, I don't know, uh, a banana, an apple, some food essentially. So you put all the monkeys in the cage and you start training them. The way you train them is you put the bananas or whatever on the platform. And then the first monkey, the very first monkey that climbs at that pole, you hit that son of a bitch with a high pressure fire hose and blow that bastard into the wall. It falls down on the floor and you rinse and repeat. Any monkey that touches that freaking pole, you spray him down. And then after they're all tired, you you take the bananas off of the platform and then you put you actually give them food through the proper channels, the proper channels, like feeding them through the cage or a port, some place that they don't have to climb up the pole, okay? You do this day after day, week after week month after month until finally you can put bananas on top of that platform and there's not a single monkey in that cage that will dare touch that pole. Not even touch it. Not want to even look at it. Okay. So then you take one of the monkeys away and you replace it with another of the same kind of monkey that has never been in that cage. What happens? You put bananas on the pole Okay. Oh, and it's not just spraying. I'm sorry. I need to correct this. It's not just spraying the one monkey down on the pole. You spray them all. They all get screwed. Okay. That's sort of the way this works. And that was a very important part. Not just the monkey on the pole gets hit with the fire hose. All of them get hit over the fire hose. But the first one, son of a bitch that goes down is blowing that monkey off the pole. And then everybody gets hosed. Okay. So after months of that, you introduce a new monkey, take one away. Okay. You have to take one away. That new monkey doesn't know dick about what's going on. That monkey, when you put food on that platter, will climb that pole. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about blowing them off that pole. The other four monkeys or however many monkeys that were from the original group, they will pull that son of a bitch off that pole because they're like, if you climb up that pole, we all get hosed. You let that monkey sit in there for a a few weeks. That monkey who's never been sprayed by a hose before ever will not climb that pole. Then you take another monkey away, a different monkey away from the original group, and you put a new monkey in. This goes on. The new monkey will try to get the bananas. Even the, even the newest edition of the, like the monkey that was introduced the last time will endeavor to pull that son of a bitch off the pole, even though that particular monkey had never got hit by the hose. It was trained by the cellmates because they were pulling him off the pole. So now the brand new monkey starts getting pulled off the pole. A couple of weeks go by, doesn't go up the pole. You do this until every single monkey of the original cohort has been replaced with new monkeys. None of those monkeys in that cage will have ever been hit by the hose. 
and yet they will display the exact same behavior when bananas are put on the pole. They, you will get to a point where you can, do, you can go through three or four cohorts, right? And nobody will ever climb that pole ever again. And the, the fire hose will have only ever been used on the first cohort of monkeys. Isn't that amazing? When you're all born into a system and you know no other part of the world, no other system because you'll never be taught about Austrian economics in college or high school, then you will make sure that you pull your other people in your cohort off that pole when they're trying to reach for something. And that's how you control a shitload of monkeys in a cage. Lots of insidious Wall Street tricks are coming for Bitcoin, says Caitlin Long, written by the Daily Hodel staff for the Daily Hodel sometime today. And there's caveat here. Uh, I got I, 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 I to gotta say that uh, Dieter Bob came at me on this one. So I'm going to definitely read uh, his tweet about when I tweeted out this story to set up the show. But let's read the story. Chief executive of Wyoming-based Avanti Financial Group and 22-year Wall Street veteran Caitlin Long says insidious Wall Street tricks may be on the horizon for Bitcoin. In a recent episode of Disrupt Meister, the former Wyoming Blockchain Task Force committee member says that while there's nothing inherently wrong with coin lending, she fears that some entities may offer BTC-related products that are not actually backed by Bitcoin. Quote, there's absolutely nothing wrong with debt and there's absolutely nothing wrong with coin lending as long as it is 100% backed with real on-chain coins. When you start to actually have off-chain claims to Bitcoin that are sold as if they are Bitcoin and they are no longer linked to the actual blockchain itself, that is where you start to get that circulation credit creeping in. That is the bad type of financialization. I have called it leverage-based financialization. Another way to call it is uncovered claims to Bitcoin that are not 100% backed by real Bitcoin. There are lots of ways that Wall Street does this. It's very insidious. And because of the way the accounting works, auditors don't even catch this either. It is something that builds slowly over time. And unfortunately, I think it is probably coming to Bitcoin, end quote. Long points out that entities offering products that involve Bitcoin, such as Grayscale, Bitcoin Trust, and Ledger X are not disclosing public keys. She says regulators should step in to avoid any wrongdoing. Oh, man. Quote, I've been saying that to the regulators. Use the blockchain to your advantage. You can track this stuff and verify that there are no shenanigans happening behind the scenes because gap accounting is not going to pick this up. End quote. And that's going to end this particular piece from Daily Hodel. Now, let's see what, what Dieter Bob has to say. If you guys are unaware of Dieter Bob, this is at Ah Ye Dieter Bob. That's A W Y E E D E A T E R B O B. And if you don't know who Dieter Bob is, then you're missing one of the most fantastic characters on Twitter, on Bitcoin Twitter. You want to talk about a maximalist. This dude, I'm surprised he hasn't crawled up my ass. And I guess in a way he does, because the way that I, I, I set up this show is I tweet out, the uh, headline or the the link to the headline that I, or, or the news story that I'm going to read. Uh, and then I'm able to dump that into a list that I've made that is called the morning roundup. If you go to my show notes, you can actually uh, get that, get that link and you can look at all the stuff that I've ever covered before all in a row separated by uh, the name, the uh, name and date uh, or name of the episode and the date of the show. Uh, but uh, ah, ye, he will, or Dieter will, he'll, he'll come at me a couple of times. Like he, like this one, he says, um, Caitlin is an enemy of Bitcoin. In addition to spreading general FUD for her own benefit, she is also pushing for legislation to be passed, making possession of BTC, not equal to ownership of BTC. She is total scum. I know it's harsh, but dude, again, that's Dieter Bob. And one of the reasons why I like Dieter Bob is that he will keep your ass in line. So, and he also is a very vicious chihuahua. So don't piss him off. Never mind Coinbase. Big Brother is already watching your coins. Government surveillance may be more rampant in the crypto space than most users realize, says, says a source familiar with ongoing tactics. This is Cointelegraph.com's Jeffrey Albus. Uh, he's writing this one sometime yesterday. Uh, on June the 5th, 
Cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase came under fire for its alleged efforts to sell crypto surveillance services to both the U.S. DEA and the IRS in the days since. Coinbase representatives have made it clear that the company's analytic services do not share any personal ident- personally identifiable data with law enforcement. They claim to source all the data from publicly available information. I'm going to stop right there. Bullshit. If that's the case, then why does the IRS and the USDEA need to buy your services when all this shit's publicly available? Think about that. If it's just publicly available, there is absolutely no reason that the United States government hadn't for years been building their own service to do this. They don't need Coinbase. The reason that they do need Coinbase is because they are lying to you. They are selling your personally identifiable data, your, uh, basically your uh, driver's license number, which has your address on it uh, or associated with it. Anything else that you've ever given them, they're given to these people and you know it. So stop acting like Coinbase has anything but the most nefarious uh, future in mind for you. Continuing on, uh, though Coinbase's denial may contain a grain of truth, the source who has worked in compliance for crypto exchanges and Bitcoin ATM companies revealed to Cointelegraph that multiple government entities have been actively monitoring users across nearly every centralized exchange and custodial crypto service provider for years. Speaking on the condition of anonymity, this source indicated that crypto surveillance tactics go all the way back to Bitcoin's earliest days. They said these practices became a much broader effort after the much maligned Mt. Gox incident in which 850,000 BTC went missing on the once popular exchange in late 2013. Our source explained, quote, I've worked for crypto exchanges, Bitcoin ATM companies, general crypto service providers, and more. They all engage in surveillance practices. They have no choice, end quote. When it comes to keeping a tab on users, they said the U.S. government's favorite methodology is called Suspicious Activity Report, or SAR. While SARs are common in most money transmission businesses, crypto SARs appear to operate under different standards. They stated that, quote, in traditional institutions, a transaction needs to meet certain criteria in most cases to be deemed suspicious. That's not really true for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, though. As far as the government is concerned, the threshold of suspicious is met as soon as cryptocurrency is involved. They elaborated, quote, custodial entities are legally required to file SARS for basically any suspicious crypto related transaction above $5,000, regardless of the user's other activity. Many file for lower amounts. The entities are legally barred from revealing this reporting data to users or any member of the public. We cannot tell you we filed a report on you ever. And entities cannot refuse to comply with these reporting tactics because if they do, they will lose licenses, which allow them to operate, operate, and they may face they they may face fines or even imprisonment. In quote, when asked which agencies are most interested in users' crypto data, one source or our source revealed that reports are shared with FinCEN, IRS, FBI, various other law enforcement agencies. It ro- runs the whole gamut. And it isn't just U.S. law enforcement, quote, it's the U.S., China, Japan, Russia, the U.K., others, I'm sure. It depends on where you're based, but nearly every world power has legally mandated methods of reviewing centralized user data, end quote. Our source also revealed that the information requested is fairly robust. Agencies want to know, quote, what coins you hold, how often you trade, the initial source of any funds used to buy crypto, (coughs) the amount of profit you've taken within a certain period of time. They can, they can and do ask for it all. They also keep track of where your coins are sent once they leave centralized custody. So if you're keeping your coins in cold storage, there's a good chance that some office within one or more world governments is aware of that wallet address. No matter where you move them, if a centralized exchange has ever held on to those coins, they can track you. I don't necessarily agree. Coin join, coin swap. There are many ways to cover, cover that up, but whatever. Continuing on, how so how can you know if you're one of the people who have been or is currently being monitored by government agency? That is an eerily simply simple question to answer, says our source. Quote, if you've ever filled out AML information, there's a good chance that data has been requested by someone. Monitoring crypto users is the entire point of AML and KYC. Why do you think places collect this information at sign up? You are being watched, end quote. 
Though uh, services cannot legally inform their users that they have filed activity reports, there are apparently signs people can watch out for. Quote, frozen accounts or funds. If you've had login issues that barred you from accessing your account, anything like that <clears throat> likely means that you have been subjected to a suspicious activity report without our knowledge or without your knowledge, or a government entity may have requested insights about you or your funds, in which case you may not be allowed to move forward until their review is complete. Um, blockchain participants operate in an industry largely built upon the ideals of individual sovereignty and personal privacy. There are numerous projects in the space that are working to build decentralized variants of popular crypto service offerings. When it comes to avoiding the demands of surveilling governments around the world, our source was clear, quote, decentralized exchanges and privacy coins are the only answer that I'm aware of. Use centralized services at your own peril, not private. He says privacy coins, but that's like, he's talking about Monero and shit. I still fundamentally believe that these are shit coins and are just not to be trusted. So everything about privacy should be because it stems from a decentralized service. You got paid for it by a, by a paid or paid for a service that you, you know, or product or service that you are giving. Uh, and they give you money, but not like if my services, I'm going to have a centralized exchange. Well, that service, all bets are off. But if I want to make you something in Photoshop and you want to pay me Bitcoin for it, good, good luck. Also, again, coin swaps coming. We have CoinJoin, Wasabi, there's Samurai stuff. There's all kinds of neat stuff. Okay. Um, the use of private privacy coins and decentralized exchanges being the only answer is clear bullshit. Please fucking stop it. You're just sowing FUD. Sorry, that kind of thing pisses me off because when you point, oh, well, you should use a privacy coin like Monero. No, 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 no. This is, this is bullshit. It's not safe. <clears throat> Bitcoin is becoming more trustworthy than big banks, says a survey. And survey says... Liam Frost writing this one for decrypt.co sometime this morning. The number of people who trust Bitcoin over big banks has shot up by 29% over the last three years, while millennials are flocking to Bitcoin. The people around the world are increasingly trusting Bitcoin over big banks. According to a tokenist survey, the survey, which polled 4,852 participants across 17 countries, found that 47% of uh, respondents trust Bitcoin over big banks, which is an increase of 29% in the past three years. The survey also showed a striking generation gap when it comes to Bitcoin in the banks. While over half of millennials trust Bitcoin over big banks, an increase of 24% over 2017, over nine in 10 of over 65 trust big banks over Bitcoin. Let me hold up. Remember what I was telling you about the monkeys. Over 65s is the original cohort. Actually, it's not the original cohort. It's the last cohort. It's the last cohort. This will be the time we have this chance to break out of the bullshit mentality that we've been in for well over 100 years, probably centuries. We have this chance to no longer be monkeys. Continuing, the over 65s are wary of Bitcoin in general, with half of those polled thinking that it's a bubble versus uh, less than a quarter of millennials. Millennials' embrace of Bitcoin is partly down to increased, uh, partly down to increased familiarity. Okay, that's a bad sentence, but I'll go with it. Millennials' embrace, <clears throat> embrace of Bitcoin is partly down to increased familiarity. 78% of millennials are somewhat familiar with Bitcoin versus 61% of total respondents and 14% of them have owned Bitcoin in the next five years. 44% of millennials expect to buy some Bitcoin. You better do it tomorrow, man. Not surprisingly then, the survey also found that 59% of millennials are confident that Bitcoin will see mass adoption within the next 10 years uh, and that most people around the world uh, will likely be using it by that time. Bye, bye, bye! While millennials may be leading the way in Bitcoin adoption, the survey found increased knowledge of and growing confidence in Bitcoin among all age and gender groups surveyed, its writers stated. Six in 10 or 60% of those polled felt that Bitcoin is a positive innovation in financial technology, an increase of 27% in three years. 
<clears throat> and over 45% of respondents prefer Bitcoin over stocks, real estate, and gold. That would be me. Quote, three years ago, many of the largest BTC brokers were relatively new and were therefore accorded a low level of trust, said the report's writers. Now there appears to be an appreciation of the maturity and stability of these providers. End quote. With stocks and shares taking a beating in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, in subsequent lockdown, some Bitcoin advocates are arguing that this is cryptocurrency's moment, though with Bitcoin's price fluctuating in recent days, it clearly has some way to go yet. Okay, a little aside about this, people saying that it's cryptocurrency's moment. First of all, if it's not Bitcoin, it's shitcoin. Second of all, Bitcoin's moment is every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every year from... 2009 till now and on into the future. There's never a time where it's Bitcoin's moment. Okay. That, in my opinion, is FUD. Please stop listening to it. Every single day that Bitcoin produces blocks is Bitcoin's moment. Every block Bitcoin mines is Bitcoin's moment. And if it didn't happen in block 600,000 and whatever, then it will be 6,100 never and one. And if it doesn't happen then, then it'll be two and then three and then four. This whole moment shit is a really, this is monkey think. This is monkey in the cage think. This is the moment. And if it hasn't seized the moment, then it's trash. That's being pulled down off the pole. Okay, stop being the monkey that's getting pulled down off the pole. Be the monkey that finds the key, that opens the lock, that opens the door, that you can get the fuck out, okay? Fireblocks integrates chain analysis. Know your transaction feature. Oh boy, more scumbags. Felipe Arazo is writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime this morning. Fireblocks will now utilize chain analysis. Know your transaction tool to streamline compliance and anti-money laundering features. Is it features? Oh, sorry, measures. It's a measure, not a feature. <clears throat> Blockchain analysis company. Chain analysis is partnering with institutional di digital asset security specialist Fireblocks to integrate its KYT system to monitor crypto transactions within the platform, according to an announcement on June the 15th. The addition will strengthen Fireblocks' security standards and AML compliance. KYT, know your transaction, allows users to automatically screen transaction based on risk standards and ensure that non-approved trades aren't executed without manual review. Speaking with Cointelegraph, Fireblocks CEO Michael Shalov said, quote, compliance and security are two of the most important pillars of storing and transferring digital assets today by integrating with Chainalysis KYT, Fireblocks is removing the regulatory obstacles that exchanges, lending desks, banks, liquidity providers, and market makers face when moving crypto, ensuring that these institutions can be as secure and compliant as possible, all from the Fireblocks platform, end quote. Yeah, really? Just use CASA or somebody. Shalov claims that in just 2019 alone, more than $4 billion worth of crypto was lost to fraud, misappropriation of funds, exchange hacks, and thefts, leading the United States Department of the Treasury to declare digital assets as one of the most significant illicit finance vulnerabilities. <laughs> wow. Furthermore, the ability to more easily comply with AML standards could prove to be a cost savings measure for companies in the space. A recent study by CypherTrace revealed that banks and traditional financial systems globally paid more than $6.2 billion in AML fines in 2019. Looking ahead, Shalov said that there are near-term plans to expand the Fireblocks network through onboarding new institutions, <clears throat> offering support for new tokens, and integrating with new exchanges. Recently, Fireblocks launched its asset transfer network. <clears throat> the open network enables institutions to find and connect with peers and transfer assets on chain while streamlining settlement and post-trade operations. That's gonna do it for the morning roundup. Let's get into a, I don't know, let's do something funny. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you as usual by Dad Says Jokes. I just bought a new blindfold. I can't see myself wearing it. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, buddy, that was a good one. All right, Monday's uh, episode 251 is officially in the bag. This is the first one of the new epoch. I talked about that on Friday. If you want to understand what I'm talking about there, go back and listen to episode 250, which happened on Friday. Other than that, I don't have, I mean, other than the train wreck, the ongoing train wreck of Craig Wright, I ain't got one for you. There was a couple that I saw, but I'm like, meh, you know, they're just not bad enough. So I'm just leaving them out. But uh, it is the start of a new week. Try to spend this week learning how to not be a monkey. And don't, don't think I'm talking, talking bad about you. I'm a monkey too. I I grew up in this bullshit. Okay. I climbed the pole. I get sprayed. I get sprayed off. I I will pull somebody down off the pole. It's very hard to break out of the mental training, especially since you weren't an adult when you started training, like went into the military as an 18 year old and then trained on tactics and warfare and urban stuff and all that. You know, that training happened at 18. Our training happened decades, if not centuries before we were born. It trained all of the people that came before us and it got transferred to us because that's the way you control not only massive groups of people, but massive groups of people for years, decades, centuries, possibly millennia. We have to stop being the monkey. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.